This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Stu Friedman. Welcome to Work and Life, a conversation in which we explore everything related to work and the rest of your life, your family, community, and your private self, your mind, body, and spirit. I am your host, Stu Friedman. I'm the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and our leadership program. I've been teaching at Wharton since 1984. Do you believe that? That's a long time. And every year, different and in some ways more interesting than the next. Than the, so I'm uh, thrilled to be here with you and, and so glad that you're listening. Uh, tonight, why can some teams come together, tackle a challenging problem, produce excellent results, and others can't? My guest tonight is someone who knows that leaders fall into traps that stem from how they think they should act, which blocks them from creating the kind of conditions in their organizations that enable them to really get to the heart of it, to get to what needs to be said so that people can communicate in ways to make their teams uh, effective in meeting the demands of their various um, clients, customers, whoever it is receives their work. Um, whether it's products or services or decisions, but also how the teams can grow as performing units and how each member can experience uh, something positive in their work together. So he is uh, one of the world's experts in uh, helping teams to become better at what they do. And he's going to talk to us about what he calls the mutual learning approach how to get unstuck, how to use it to get unstuck and produce great results. Roger Schwartz has developed these ideas over decades now. And uh, in my teaching the Leading Effective Teams class here at the Wharton School, I've been using Roger's work since I've been teaching that course. It's almost 15 years now. And uh, students love it. Uh, clients love it because it is practical. It's theory-driven. It's values-based. And it works. Uh, Before I welcome Roger to the show, let me just say a little bit more about him. He is an organizational psychologist. He's a compelling speaker. He's a team and leadership consultant. And he's president and CEO of his own company, Roger Schwarz and Associates. He's worked with uh, organizations in technology, manufacturing, medical organizations, government agencies, a whole range of uh, companies. Underlying his work is the idea, the premise that to create real, sustainable, fundamental change, people need to change not just how they act, but how they think, their mindset. Roger has written wonderful, accessible, and and very compelling, useful books on these topics, Smart Leaders, Smarter Teams, How You and Your Team Get Unstuck to Get Results, and the masterwork, the classic, the the text, the, the seminal work in the field of, of uh, consulting with teams, it's The Skilled Facilitator, a comprehensive resource for consultants, facilitators, coaches, and trainers, now in its third edition. He also writes uh, at the Harvard Business Review. He was a tenured professor at the University of North Carolina at uh, Chapel Hill before starting his own company. He's got a PhD from... Uh, the University of Michigan in organizational psychology, which is where I got my PhD, and Roger was one of my mentors and continues to be. He was a couple of years ahead of me in that program, and uh, I have learned from him these many, many, many years uh, since then, and I am very grateful uh, to have Roger Schwartz joining me on the show tonight. Roger, welcome back to Work and Life. Thanks, Stu. It's great to be with you. Yes, well, it's great to have you here. Um, you were here once before, if I'm not mistaken, back in April 2014. So it's been three and a half years. We've been on the air since January 2014. I'm sure 
uh, much has happened in in your world. Uh, let's kick this off tonight with just a brief description, if you will, of the mutual learning approach. What is it, and what does it accomplish? Simply put, Stu, the mutual learning approach is a way to think that is a set of values and assumptions that you use to think, your mindset, that really guide and inform how you act and that get you three kinds of results. First result is improved performance, however you're defining performance in the setting in which you're working and acting. Second result is working relationships, improved working relationships with whoever you're working with. And the third result is uh, more positive individual well-being so that you're feeling more motivated, more satisfied, less stressed. That's the essence of mutual learning. So that is a great promise, and I know that it is effective because I've, I've seen it work. I've used it. Um, let's, let's explore a little further what this means to think differently. So describe, if you will, what the core values and assumptions are of this approach and, and why it's worth our listeners thinking about how they might uh, try those values and assumptions on. Sure. So the core values of mutual learning and the core assumptions of mutual learning are pretty straightforward. There are five values. They are transparency, curiosity, informed choice, where you're helping others and yourself make good decisions based on good information, accountability, holding yourself and others accountable, and doing all of those four things with compassion for yourself and for others. Mm -hmm. And then there's a set of corollary assumptions. Uh, these are things that you assume as you're working with other people. And the five assumptions are, I have information, so do other people. I'm not the only one who knows things. Second is that each of us may see things that others don't. So you may see things in a conversation that I missed and vice versa. Third is that people may disagree with me and still have pure motives. Just because someone sees something differently doesn't mean they have a hidden agenda. It doesn't mean they're trying to do something at my expense. Fourth assumption I think is really a critical assumption is that differences are opportunities for learning. When you're with people who have different views, different perspectives on the issue that you're trying to work on, those are not barriers necessarily. There are opportunities for figuring out what do other people know, how can we take what other people know and what I know and integrate it into a way that we can not only work better together, but get a better product, a better service, whatever it is. And the last assumption is that I may be contributing to the problem. In other words, uh, when you're in a conversation, when you're in a meeting, and things aren't going like you would like them to go, which all of us have had uh, experience with if we've been in the workplace or even before we got in the workplace. If you're having that feeling, it's not going well. Mutual learning says, look inside. Don't just look outside. Instead, just say, okay, how might I may how might I be contributing to the very problems I'm complaining about, either privately or publicly to other people? So that's the essence of mutual learning, uh, and it's it's pretty simple. Uh, it's pretty intuitive. It's just a lot harder to do yes. than it sounds like. And, yes. Well, it, it all does make sense, of course. And uh, it, it is in the, um, the execution, if you will, or the, the bringing to life in, in one's everyday uh, relationships uh, that it is sometimes challenging, uh, particularly with people who we feel are trying to hurt us in some way or or who are in you know fundamental disagreement um, so you you teach people how to adopt or at least try on these values and assumptions, which are perhaps you know in all of us to to take on as as values and assumptions that we want to live by. Uh, but uh, are you know they're not they're not as in, um, as commonly held uh, by most of the people we we interact with as we would like. So uh, let, let me ask: Why is it that 
most people don't act according to values and assumptions like these. So the way I think about it, and I think uh, what's consistent with uh, research and my experience with clients, is that at times all of us use a mutual learning approach. We're, not only are we all capable of that for the most part, but um, there are times when we have relationships with folks and we're at work where we are operating from that mindset, that set of values and assumptions. And many of us often espouse those values and assumptions uh, even when we don't live up to them. So, so I want to be clear, uh, it's not like this is some holy grail we're trying to achieve and it's, you know, it, it's not quite reachable. We are capable of doing this, and we do this, and we can all point to that. The challenge is this. The challenge is that when we're in challenging situations, almost all of us, the research shows that almost all of us uh, use an approach, a mindset different than mutual learning, which is called unilateral control. And my work in mutual learning and unilateral control builds on the work of Chris Hardris, founder of Field of Organization Development, one of the founders of the field and probably the founder of Field of Organizational Learning, fortunate enough to be a student of his many years ago. And so mm -hmm. his research, along with his research partner, really identified these two approaches. That's Chris Argyris. Let me just spell that right. for people who are now out sure. there Googling. Right. It's A-R-G-Y-R-I-S, correct? Right, exactly. Chris uh, People Argyris. find it difficult to pronounce, but it's Argyris, yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so, Chris referred to these unilateral control as model one and mutual learning as model two. Uh, but the idea is when we're in challenging situations, situations that are in some way threatening, embarrassing, high stakes for us, where other people have different views than we do, we almost always act out of a unilateral control mindset and approach. Uh, and that mindset is very different from the mutual learning approach mindset. So the unilateral control mindset has values like win, don't lose. You know, be right. When people are disagreeing with you, what you want to do is you want to win and you want to be right, and you want to try to minimize the expression of negative feelings. You don't want to bring feelings up because in the professional workplace, feelings are often seen as inappropriate. Don't go there. Nothing good can come of it. Now, so we act very rational about this. We can deal with this on a strictly logical basis. I'll make my argument, and it will win the day. So those are the values we operate from. And then we have a set of assumptions very different from mutual learning. So the assumptions are things like, I understand the situation, and if you disagree with me, it's because you don't understand it. Mm -hmm. And therefore, You're either I'm right. too stupid or just wrong. Exactly, right. And therefore, I'm right and you're wrong. Right? Mm -hmm. So the beautiful thing about uh, unilateral controlling approach is that uh, the only way you can really show me that you understand is to agree with me. Right? Now you get it, Stu, you agree with mm -hmm. me. Uh, and then the, the piece about motives is I've got pure motives, and if you disagree with me, your motives are suspect. I don't know what you're trying to do, but it's probably not a good thing. And therefore, whatever my feelings are toward you and whatever I, my behaviors are to you are justified because I am just doing what I need to do given that you're not being a rational, mm -hmm. productive person in this conversation. And right. finally, I'm not contributing to the problem. Right. It's so I have you. to beat okay. you into submission, basically, so that you, you, yeah, you see that things or, in the exactly, correct way. Or, exactly. And, and we all use this unilateral control approach, whether we have the most power in the room, no power in the room, somewhere in between. Okay? And that leads to the opposite of the results we're trying to get, even as we are hunkered down in the unilateral control. And there, what do you mean by that? Because well, uh, shouldn't we just be arguing it out so that the best idea wins, Roger, if I can be devil's advocate here? A... You know, it's, it, that's an interesting approach, and many leaders have that. I, I uh, worked with uh, a client not too long ago where the CEO uh, was by far the brightest person in the room, and everyone acknowledged that. I mean, incredibly bright person. And... His view was when we have difficult enterprise-wide decisions to make, we should do just what you said, Stu. We should argue our points, and the best point, you know, the best point will emerge and, and come up and win. The problem is 
Um, if you're a really good arguer and you're working with people who have really good ideas but aren't nearly as articulate as about their ideas as you are, mm-hmm. not as compelling, then the best idea doesn't win. Okay? Uh, but the best person who can articulate it wins. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, often it's not the best idea that makes the difference. It is the ideas of people who have different perspectives that is better than any one idea. Mm-hmm. And we lose that when that happens. And so I, in fact, when I, it's win-lose and, it, and it's, yeah, it, exactly. You lose I, the benefit of, uh, of generating multiple perspectives and coming up with creative solutions. Exactly. So if you're, if you're, whether you're a CEO or any leader who is working with people who have less power and authority than you, mm-hmm. and you may be more articulate than they are, mm-hmm. it's easy to win a conversation and get poor performance and poor working relationships than you really should be able to get. Mm-hmm. I, you mentioned my writing for Harvard Business Review, and so I wrote a piece uh, not too long ago about how leaders miss opportunities to work effectively mm-hmm. because they don't show other people, they don't invite other people or tell other people how they can be influenced. It's a Do great article. The, the title, if I'm not mistaken, How Leaders Can Help Others Influence Them. Exactly. Yeah. If you go online and you Google mm-hmm. uh, how to influence others, there's several million Uh, When you Google how to be influenced by others, I think I got about seven hits, right? And that tells you That's the story, isn't it, about our culture uh, and why this is so hard to to make real in in daily organizational life, right? Exactly. We think of leadership as simply influencing others. We teach that in business schools, but we don't think about leadership as helping others learn how to influence us. Roger, let me just pause for a moment and remind listeners, you're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I'm talking with the great Roger Schwartz, who is an organizational psychologist and author of the best-selling book, um, Smart Leaders, Smart Teams, and the Skilled Facilitator Field Book. He is, uh, I would suggest, the world's leading expert on how to create real communication that works in teams. And I've used his work in my own teaching and work with clients for decades. And it's it's just brilliant and it works. And we're going to be taking calls in the second half of the show. So if you've got a question about how to create the environment in which people can actually talk to each other about what needs to be said in your life, in your work, give us a call. The number is 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So, Roger, what kinds of problems do people come to you with? Like, what, what's, the, what's the typical presenting problem that you get from people who call for your services? There are several kinds of problems that our clients typically come to us with. One is a team-focused problem, which is we have a team. It's a high-stakes team, either because it's a very senior leadership team or because it is a team that's doing something that is critical and central to the mission of the organization, and they are not getting the performance they need, the results that they need, or their working relationships are undermining their performance, or in some cases, Mm -hmm. uh, the individual being is so poor that um, people don't want to be part of that team anymore. Mm -hmm. And so then the question becomes, how do we take a team that's already... Uh, focused and help them learn to think differently and work differently with each other to get the results they're not getting. That's one scenario. A second is a an organization that is more broadly trying to change the way it works, not only within teams, but across teams, and has a culture that is at odds with effective performance and working relationships. Uh, because ultimately, when we are working with our clients and helping them change the way that we, they think, what we're really doing is helping them change the culture of either their team and or their organizations. Because culture in the organizational sense is simply the shared values and assumptions that a group of people operate from and that guide their behavior. And so, ultimately, this work is about changing culture, either changing the culture of the team, changing the culture of the organization, and also changing your own mindset that generates all that. So those are the, the 
main kinds of issues. And, those those and are big issues. So what do you do? How do you help people uh, deal with those issues um, in, in, a, in a way that enables them to create meaningful uh, change that lasts? Well, we use a variety of approaches. Uh, we, as a consulting firm, we consult with folks, we facilitate, we coach them, we offer training, but all of those approaches, we also do a team assessments, all of those approaches are really designed to do several things. Uh, the first is, in order to change the way you think so that you can get better results, mm-hmm. uh, you have to be aware of what your thinking is, you know, mm-hmm. what, uh, what in the field is called metacognition. Right? We have to be able to think about how we think. Mm-hmm. If you can't do that, then you can't change the way you think. And so one of the things we help people do is to learn how to become aware of what the values and assumptions are that are driving their behavior and getting them the results they don't want. So we teach people how to do that. Mm -hmm. We have a pretty straightforward approach so they can look at their own conversations. They can look at their own writings and emails and say, wow, I didn't realize that I spent 15 and 20 or 20 minutes with this person, I didn't ask them one question. I wasn't curious mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. How could I possibly learn? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. We, that's the first thing. You we have them, them examine their own experience to discover uh, what their real approach is. They might say that they're open and curious and generous and compassionate, but when they actually look at what they do, they see perhaps a different story. Exactly. And and the way that we do that, I think, is important because yeah. in our work, we are always having our clients use their own cases, their own data, mm-hmm. their own examples of mm-hmm. conversations to analyze. So there's never this question of, well, this isn't realistic. It's not really me. It's them. They mm-hmm. bring this, these things to, the, to us. We help them learn how to look at them. And that's very powerful for them. So this might work in technology, but not in financial services, Roger. I'm sorry. I don't think it's going to work here. You you must hear things like that, right? Uh, Yes. Uh, We've we've heard that. We also have heard uh, – this is – you know, we're we're a very rigorous organization. We are – you know, we we don't like touchy-feely stuff. We're concerned about this. And I think what our clients find out is uh, this approach is very rigorous. I like to say that I, I think of this work as a scientific approach, scientific method, I should say, of how you work with other people in teams and organizations. So could you give uh, a, like a specific example of a recent sure. uh, intervention or case that, uh, that you were involved in that illustrates so, that? So you know, one, of the, one of the principles of, uh, of the scientific method is you don't make assumptions or inferences without first checking them out to see whether they're valid. Right? No scientist in his or her you know, good practice would do that. Mm-hmm. You'd always test it out. So that's actually one of the behaviors we teach. And we have worked with lots of different clients where they made some assumption about something. So uh, we were working with a global energy company, and at one point, one of the people we were working with was having a, a problem about someone else, uh, not about someone else, with another part of the organization mm-hmm. uh, who controlled the uh, flow of money in the organization and so forth. And this organization, this person wanted to put a program in place that enabled uh, there to be certain discounts okay, for vendors. And the, the other person said, I, I, don't, I don't want to do this. This is not going to be beneficial to our, our company. And it turned out that this other person was disagreeing with this because he had been making some assumptions about how the program would work. So our client was able to talk to this person about assumptions that he, he thought the other person might be making, check them out, found out they weren't valid, and then jointly design a way to test out essentially what was valid it took 40 minutes for the conversation, and it completely changed so that this other person said, yeah, I'm now willing to support this program. And this is something that this... So what was the fundamental change months. that occurred in that, in that conversation? The fundamental change that occurred was so simple, which is the person he was talking to had been making an assumption all along that had been incorrect, mm-hmm. and our client, okay, the same organization, our client wasn't able to identify it 
and describe it as that assumption and ask this person whether they in fact believe that, you know, mm-hmm. in in a really full curiosity, genuine curiosity, and say, how do we check that out? How do we mm-hmm. test that out together? Mm-hmm. Now, which is another principle of the scientific method. If two scientists have competing hypotheses, you know, they have two alternatives. One is to uh, each publish their own work, and, you know, everyone gets published, and that's wonderful for what it is. Or they work together and they say, hey, how do we design some experiments to figure out what's really happening? That's what this, our client did in this situation. Really? And as a result, they were able to move forward. So, so by just saying, here's what I think you might be thinking about this. Um, do I have it right? Or, or words to that effect. They were able to jointly look at whether or not the, they had a, 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 you know, a, an understanding of uh, how each other was thinking. Exactly. Because we, are, you know, we have access to our own reasoning, and it makes perfect sense to us. But when we're in challenging situations working with other people, it's often because in some way other people's reasoning is different than ours, and we don't know how to productively engage with people whose whose, uh, reasoning seems different from ours and explore the differences and do that with genuine curiosity to Mm -hmm. figure out, are they missing something? Am I missing something? Are we both missing something? Where do we go from there? So you know, this uh, is such a powerful method, and um, you know the the fundamental, the first of the eight behaviors that you teach: state your views and ask genuine questions. Uh, is one that I want to uh, pick up when we come back from our, our short break here, folks. We're we're going to step out aside for uh, a sec, and then um, going to invite you to give us a call at eight four four Wharton. That's eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. I'm speaking with Roger Schwartz, and uh, we're going to be available in just a couple minutes to answer your questions about how do you cut through the uh, the various disguises and other ways that we you know suppress uh, the uh, our mutual understanding of our different points of view to get at solutions that work for both of us. There are ways of doing it. Uh, Roger's been doing it for for decades, and uh, he's going to be able to help you if that's if that's an issue that you are facing. And if you're like most people working in organizations today, you are facing this on a daily basis. So uh, stay with us, and if you want to get in the queue uh, to speak with Roger Schwartz about how to create better conversations in your organization and in other parts of your life. Uh, the number again, 844-942-7866. That's 844-WHARTON. You're listening to Work and Life on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We'll be back in a couple. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Stu Friedman. Hey, welcome back. We are all working on a dream, right? Uh, it's Work and Life. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and the Wharton Leadership Program. And we're talking with Roger Schwartz tonight, who is the president and CEO of Roger Schwartz & Associates. That's S-C-H-W-A-R-Z. He's an organizational psychologist who helped to train me in graduate school 100 years ago. He's he was a couple of years ahead of me at the University of Michigan in the organizational psychology area there. And he's written some really important and powerful and very accessible books on, well, I'll just give you the titles, Smart Leaders, Smart Teams, and the Skilled Facilitator Field Book, which has been uh, a fundamental text in our teaching here about leading effective teams at the Wharton School. Uh, and we're talking about his model of mutual learning and the mindset uh, and the skill set that it takes to bring that to life and why it is such a powerful uh, method for helping people to get at the truth so that they can perhaps better pursue their dreams in terms of what they're trying to do to work together. Uh, most of us are in work relationships where it's just hard to talk. 
and to have the kind of conversation that needs to be had. Um, Roger's work really helps people like you and me uh, to develop the capacity to have those conversations. So, Roger, welcome back. Thank you. Uh, so we're, we're talking about how, how you help people to learn uh, to adopt a, a different kind of mindset, one that is, is based on uh, not me beating you with my ideas and, and, uh, and submerging your input, but rather uh, creating an environment in which we both are learning and producing the best results for us and for the people we serve. Um, I wonder if you could say more about uh, how you teach people these these ways of thinking and and being. Um, and and I just want to reemphasize that the eight behaviors that you teach. The first one, stating your views, asking genuine questions. It's so simple and yet so incredibly powerful to to take that seriously and to reveal to people. Here's what I'm thinking. What are you thinking? <laughs> I mean, it's it's in some ways not much more complicated than that, right? It's not that much more complicated than that, exactly. And as you said, it is very hard to do. I often uh, tell our clients, if you're in a meeting and you're either bored or you don't really have anything you need to do, take out a piece of paper yeah. and divide it into three columns. The first column says statement. The second column says questions. The third column says statement and questions. And then every time someone talks, just put a little mark in one of the columns and see what you have at the end of the meeting. Hmm. And you will find almost all the time that by far the column with the most marks is the one that says just state views because we're really good at learning how to state our views. Mm -hmm. And so meetings look like a series of monologues. One person says something, another person says something else, a third person says something. And sometimes these comments aren't even related. And meetings, at least effective meetings ostensibly, are supposed to be about solving problems and making decisions, which means the comments need to relate to each other. And there's a very simple way to do that. You state your view, and as you said, you then stop, put a period there, and you say, uh, you know, what problems do you see with what I'm suggesting? Anyone seeing any of this differently? Is there something I hadn't thought of? Through well-crafted, powerful questions, really genuine questions, you begin to develop a conversation, a dialogue. And that's really the power of conversation and teams. You know, it all starts with that. And the, the other thing I would add to that is, in addition to stating your views, and asking genuine questions, as you state your view, you explain your reasoning. Why am I mm -hmm. saying this? Mm -hmm. No. Then people understand what I'm thinking, mm -hmm. and when I ask a question, I begin to understand what they're thinking. And what that gives you is a pool of common information, yep. which is the basis, it's the foundation for all effective problem-solving and decision-making. It's about information sharing. That's, I mean, if you're exactly. interdependent, you're trying to do something together, you've got to be sharing information. And most of the problems in teams has to, have to do with, or a good chunk of them have to do with information not being shared. Uh, so the, you know, just asking questions is almost as bad as just making statements, right? Absolutely. And uh, our experience is that when people do ask questions, they're often not genuine. So mm -hmm. there are two kinds. We can categorize questions. You don't really think that, do you, Roger? <laughs> That's exactly a great example. Thank you for that, Stu. I, mm -hmm. I know that was uh, design and sarcastic, so yes. thank you. Okay. Uh, yeah, but that, that's, that's the perfect que uh, non-genuine question. You don't really think that, do you? And we, when we ask non-genuine questions, a couple things happen. You know, we are essentially signaling what we are thinking and putting it in the form of a question but not saying that's what we're thinking. So we're not being accountable and transparent. That's two of the mutual learning core values we're not using. Mm -hmm. And when we do that, people on the receiving end know that we're signaling to them our point of view, but not being accountable. Mm -hmm. And that gets them defensive. Hmm. And then we wonder why people get defensive. And again, this is a great, simple example of how we may be contributing to the very problems we're complaining about. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we do is we teach people Again, it seems pretty simple, right? We teach people how to ask genuine questions 
that are really designed to understand something they don't understand and need to know. But what if Not your boss is an asshole who doesn't want to hear from you? It just just says what he thinks or she thinks and, and doesn't want to you know be uh, questioned. Right. So uh, you are now raising the stakes because you're you're going to what may be an undiscussable issue if it's your boss. Mm-hmm. Um, that the undiscuss undiscussable issues is actually the eighth of the eight behaviors in mutual yes. learning, and so it means uh, having a conversation with your boss saying, uh, "This is what." Uh, I'm here, I've heard you say, you know, in this conversation and maybe in previous conversations, and you use specific examples of what you've heard him or her say, using specific examples, by the way, as the third mutual learning behavior, so people know exactly what you're talking about. So important to do that. Absolutely, because otherwise you're talking abstractly, right? Mm -hmm. So you say, you know, I, I heard you say this and this, did I get that right? The person says, yeah, so. You can say, so I'm thinking when you say that you may not want to hear my views on the topic. Is that right? Mm. Okay? And you have to say that. That's an inference you're making, right? Mm-hmm. That's the sixth behavior. You want to test out your inference. That's not the a The inference there being, I'm thinking that you may not want to hear it. Right. Unless, unless the person says to you, Stu, I don't want to hear what you have to say. Mm-hmm. I mean, if they say that, that's not an inference. That's data. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, people don't say that. Mm-hmm. And so we make up a story about what it means. So we make have up to a check story. out those stories. Mm-hmm. The right? stories in our heads. Exactly. That lead us to, to places that might not be real. Exactly. Or at and least, that's another way we contribute to the problem. At least, at least connected to, 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 to the conversation. Uh, the number, again, folks, if you want to talk to uh, one of the true masters of communication in teams, it's Roger Schwartz, 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866 about communication in your teams, in your, in your other relationships, uh, and how you change your mindset and your behavior to, to, to get to the heart of it, to get to the, the truth of what needs to be said. The number again, 844-942-7866. We have an email from Julie from Cinnamonson who writes, uh, this just came in, I'm a new manager. I get what you're saying, but how do you, as the one in charge, moderate a meeting where you ask people to state their views and a discussion starts? I feel like that could get overwhelming and confusing. Roger, what do you have to say to Julie? The first thing I would say, Julie, is it's really important to be clear about the purpose of the meeting. Mm -hmm. If the purpose of the meeting is to have a discussion that leads to solving a problem, making a decision, taking advantage of an opportunity, Mm -hmm. then you want discussion. And so then a question I would ask you would be, if, if you want discussion and you're concerned that it breaks out, are you concerned that discussion breaks out? Or are you concerned me, about... When you say break being, out, Roger, let me just jump in here. What do you mean yeah. discussion well, breaks out? Way, it, sounds like, it sounds like Julie is saying that she's concerned that uh, there's lots of discussion that goes on. Mm-hmm. And I, what I'm suggesting is discussion is the very thing you want in a meeting. In other words, meeting time is scarce. Mm-hmm. It's hard to come by, and mm-hmm. it's expensive when you bring people together. It is expensive. So, so effective meetings for the most part, use most of their time to do things you can't do outside of a meeting. And that means having people think divergently about ideas. Divergently. Right. And then ultimately convergently, coming together and saying, yeah, this makes sense given our discussion. So to diverge, of course, means to go in different directions, and to converge means to come together and agree. Exactly. And that's typically the path of many... Good meetings. People start off with divergent views, mm-hmm. and then the task is to come together and ideally mm-hmm. reach agreement and commitment to that. And so what I would say to Julie is if you're having meetings where you're concerned because people are discussing issues um, when they shouldn't be discussing issues, then I think you may have a more fundamental problem, which is you're not using meeting time well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because you're using it to download information which can be done outside of a meeting and uses people's time. As, and as opposed to having a conversation. So, exactly. So um, I, I want to remind listeners, it's 844-942-7866. That's 844-WHARTON. Uh, speaking with Roger Schwartz, who is uh, the master of communication in teams and author of uh, great books on the subject, including The Skilled Facilitator Fieldbook and Smart Leaders, Smarter Teams. 
That is the title, right, Roger? Smart Leaders, Smarter Teams, right? Smart Leaders, Smarter Teams. Yes. And then the, the other book is, uh, uh, you mentioned the field book, which we've also written, and the other one is the, the Skills Facilitator, which is the one you mentioned, which is in the third edition. Third so edition. One that I think you use in your I use it. In your, one of your yes. Right? I, I've, yes. I've read every edition multiple times, and I always learn something new. And I'm really glad that you did the third edition. It's brilliant. Um, and Thanks. the changes that you made are really wonderful. Uh, so again, it's eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Julie, if you want to continue the conversation, give us a call. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Susanna is calling from uh, Northern California. Susanna, welcome to Work and Life. Yes, I had a question for the organizational psychologist. Mm-hmm. What if you're a member of a team and you think alike, but your manager thinks differently? So you have a lot of conversations. Uh, I wouldn't say behind your manager's back, but you're all in a consensus. But in a meeting, you're afraid to say anything because if you do, it's her show or his show and you're on the outs. How would you handle that situation? Great question, Susanna. Roger, what do you think? So, uh, Susanna, let me ask, can I ask you a couple of questions to get some clarification? It sounds like, it sounds like uh, the... Individuals who report to your manager are in consensus, and your manager has a different view, a different idea of how how to proceed. Is that correct? Have I got that right? Yes. All right. And so what is it that leads you to be concerned about talking about and exploring the difference between what uh, your manager is thinking and what you and your peers are thinking? And I'm asking because that's part of the mindset that may make it difficult to have a productive conversation. I think it's just a myriad of things that have come up. Um, I raised some questions, and I was held out, held over after the meeting uh, before a jury of my peers, and I they were asked if what I asked was an attack on one of the team members. And I thought it was just a very generalized question, and then I was judged, so I, I'm not asking questions anymore. Ah, okay. So let's take that example because it speaks, I think, very well to some of the things Stu was asking about earlier, right? If when someone says to you, you know, I think you are, um, you are judging other team members or you are um, saying something that's in it, um, not appropriate about them. Those weren't your words, but um, sort of paraphrasing, okay? The first thing that I think is helpful to do with your manager is to say, uh, assuming this is true, I I wasn't aware that uh, I didn't think I was doing that. Can you tell me exactly what I said or did that led you to describe it that way? Because that'll give me a better idea of what you're talking about. That is an example of using specific examples and agreeing on what important words mean, and it comes from the mindset of being curious. Right? Susanna? Well, in this case, I asked the, the person who she thought I attacked, and she's like, I didn't have a problem with your question. Mm-hmm. Right. And I went to my manager, and she's like, well, I had a problem with the question. Well, huh, I mean, I don't know. You can't win, and I've just decided <laughs> that it's not worth well, so here's their show. It's a manager's so, show. So, so, that, so here's an example where uh, I think what you're pointing out well is who you ask questions to becomes really critical because the person who was concerned about you was your manager, right? And the person who had the, the data, she, I mean, the, your manager thought, well, I thought that was not appropriate, even though the person who you were speaking about thought it was fine. We have a saying in mutual learning, which is a saying from another field of systems thinking, which says you get the system in the room and you solve the problem where the information is. That, you know, we would deal with by saying, let's get the three of us together for two minutes in conversation. And you, manager, share what your concern was, and then we'll see uh, whether the person who I was talking about also had a concern, and then we can see where we go from there, which is what a joint design looks like. What do you what do you think, yeah. Susanna? Do you think you could do I think that? That's awesome. I, I appreciate the advice. I'll take that if this should come up again, but I doubt it will because I'm not going to raise my hand. It's not worth it. Are you, Roger? Is there something yeah, else you so, want to ask about? Yeah. So here's here is how 
teams begin to reduce their effectiveness in their working relationships, which is you had an experience with your manager, it didn't go well. He or she was saying you know, something to you that you thought wasn't valid, and you didn't come to an agreement about that, mm-hmm. and it wasn't resolved, so you've got this unproductive conflict, and you are now, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna make an inference about you, and you can tell me whether I'm right or wrong. I'm checking it out with you, Susanna. So now it looks like you have some story about your manager, about how she, it's a, it's a woman, right? Yeah. How she, she is not open to your ideas, and therefore you will, you will not be sharing them as openly as you have in the past. Is that, is that a fair description of, of how you're thinking about this? Yes, that is a fair description. So in mutual learning, there's this idea of accountability to ourselves and others and this idea of leading from every chair. In other words, if you're a member of a team and something isn't working effectively, instead of withdrawing, which is also a way of acting unilateral, by the way, instead of withdrawing, you raise the issue and you discuss it. And so here's uh, a really important moment for you, potentially, in the life of your relationship in that team to talk with your manager and others about what had happened, to be curious about how they were seeing it and how you were seeing it, and to figure out how do we create a situation in the future where people have uh, differences about what we're seeing going on, we can talk about that openly and productively because, and this is something you could share as part of your reasoning, because I want to be a good participant Mm -hmm. in this team. I think I have the good ideas. I'm thinking that you have me on this team because you see me as being valuable. If that's not the case, we have a larger conversation, but assuming that that is true, Mm -hmm. um, then let's figure out how we can work together so our differences actually end up being an asset rather than a liability. And so your, your, your question is a great one because it describes what many people on teams experience all the time. Use that experience, yeah, all the time, right? And they use that experience to make inferences about their manager or other people. And then that leads them to act in ways that they themselves don't want to act. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, my sense is that your well-being suffers. And that's right. also not good. What do you think about what I'm saying? Well, I think it's, uh, uh, you know, you're an organizational psychologist. <laughs> Obviously, you see that because that's good advice. What I didn't appreciate was her sitting down with my mm-hmm. teammates and asking if she thought what I said to that colleague was fair. And they said, I don't know. I think she was just thinking out loud. Right. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't fair because she didn't jointly design that part of the conversation with you and the other person. And she. Right. And, and that's a simple move to say, let's get the three of us in the room. And you could say to her, in the future, would you be willing to do that? So we could all hear the same information at the same time. Any concerns about doing that? That's good advice. That's good advice. And I appreciate your, your help today. I, I was really helped by that. Awesome. Good. Being confident. Thank, thank, thank you so much. Th- thank you for calling, Susanna. I really appreciate it. Uh, and, and, and appreciate your listening to our show, Work and Life. So, Roger, thank you for helping Susanna. Uh, what happened there in, in these last uh, five minutes or so in your conversation with her? Well, uh, let me ask, what, what did you do and what was the effect that it had? Yeah, so um, when Susanna was describing this interaction in the team, and she made a comment to her, uh, about someone else on the team that the manager thought was inappropriate or unproductive, right? And then the manager talked to Susanna and didn't talk to Susanna with the other person, right? And it turned out the other person had no concern. That stuff goes on. <laughs> That's the technical term. That stuff goes on all the time in mm-hmm. teams. Because, and what I, what, what I was doing with Susanna mm-hmm. was what we were talking about earlier, Stu. What I was asking her to think about is how she was thinking in the situation, right? She had gotten frustrated with her manager. She had made, um, she had basically thought to herself, you know, I understand the situation. The situation is that my manager doesn't want me to do something, not only then, but in the future. 
and then made a decision on her own how she was going to respond, mm-hmm. which is, I'm going to withdraw. Right. Okay? So that's an action she's going to take based upon a story that she's told herself that she hasn't tested out to for its validity. And that is a very common thing. And so I'm, what it's I'm so destructive in so many yeah. levels. Exactly. For her, for because the team. Absolutely. I, we have a saying in our organization, uh, it's popular in other places, uh, don't believe everything you think. <laughs> Just because you think it doesn't mean it's true. And so mm. part of this is to help her realize, oh, so yeah, I was thinking this, but I didn't say this to her, so I wasn't being transparent. So mm-hmm. that's my contribution, which is not being transparent and not also not asking her as my boss to be accountable to me and this other team member. Yeah, but this takes courage, does it not, Roger? It uh, absolutely does. Because as you could tell, we only have a minute or so left here, Roger, but the, you, you can tell that, at least I inferred from the way that Susanna was presenting her story, that she was fearful of speaking up and that it was easier to um, protect herself by, by simply withdrawing. Absolutely. And that's where the undiscussable issues come in, which is if you're fearful about saying something that you think is, would be helpful to talk about, then the first thing you say is, I want to talk to you, and I also want to let you know I'm concerned about talking about this because I don't know whether mm-hmm. you're going to let me do this or whether I'm going to pay a price. Mm-hmm. So uh, that requires some courage really there, too, though, to be vulnerable to, enough to, and, and courageous enough to say, I'm not sure how this is going to go. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. I'm anxious. To, to reveal that thinking and those feelings is, is uh, in, in many ways countercultural in many organizations. It is, and also people have a good reason to be anxious because many of them haven't developed the skill set to really have the conversation mm-hmm. productively or the mindset that would drive that skill set. Yes. And that's what the, this work is about. All right, so how can people learn more? Because we are, in some sense, just scratching the surface, although this last little case study, I think, was highly instructive and, and uh, really brought to life some of the ways in which your, your uh, ideas and tools work. How can people learn more about what you do and, uh, and to learn from you? There are a few things, and you've mentioned some of them. If they're interested in reading about what makes effective teams, they can go and look at Smart Leaders, Smarter Teams. Uh, if you're a facilitator or a consultant or a coach, uh, you can read that book, but you can also read the Skill Facilitator and the Skill Facilitator Fieldbook. Uh, you mentioned earlier that I write for Harvard Business Review, so you can go to hbr.org and uh, Google mine or Enter my name in the search mm-hmm, line and mm-hmm. read those articles. We also, I also write about once a month for an idea letter called Mindset Behavior Results on our website. I think that information may be on your website if people are interested. What's the, um, what, give us the website again. So the website is schwarzassociates.com, S-C-H-W-A-R-Z. A-S-S-O-C-I-A-T-E-S dot com. There's so and many useful resources there. There's like a, a ton of really very practical and useful articles, and I urge you to go there. We also uh, we also do open enrollment workshops for people who are trying to really develop mm-hmm. the skill set and mindset, and they can go to our website and, and learn about that there. And, of course, awesome. you know, most of our work is with organizations and teams. Roger, thank you so much for joining me again on the show. It's been a pleasure and uh, always learning from you. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Same thing here, Stu. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining the show. If you have a question about something you've heard, you can write to me, Friedman at Wharton.upenn.edu. Watch for uh, a free podcast version of this show on workandlifepodcast.com. Thanks, Patty Hall. Thanks, Tatiana Zemis, for making it sound good tonight. You've been listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.